Who read Mark 1 this week in excitement for this week? If you didn't realize last week, we've started a new series looking at the book of Mark. And so last week, Tanya had an introduction. If you weren't here last week and you didn't listen to Tan's message and you haven't caught up on the podcast, you've missed out. One thing Tan said last week was that Mark is very intentional and he, and he keeps moving. He's not mucking about. He doesn't fluff around the edges. He keeps going. And so to do this well, we can't cover what Tan did last week again. That's, that's happened. Jump on the website, download it, listen to it. If you miss a week, you're going to have to do that too. Because each week, it's just going to keep going. There's going to be more and more. And we're not going to go back and, and just keep fluffing over what, uh, what's happened before. Because Mark didn't do that, so why should we? There's actually probably going to be some things this morning that you're going to go, oh, Matt didn't cover that, or Matt didn't cover that. It's too much. Even in Mark 1 this morning, there was way too much to do this morning. We could spend four, five, six weeks on Mark 1, but we're not going to. It's all right. But uh, I just, I just want to pray because um, I think this is exciting. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your truth. And Lord, you say it's living and active, and that's because you have um, given us your Holy Spirit to do that in us. And Lord God, we don't want to treat your word uh, lightly. We want to take your word. We want to eat it. We want to chew on the bits that are hard to chew, Lord God. We want to digest the bits that you want us to digest because we want to be nourished. We want to be effective as your disciples. We want to know who you are, Jesus. And we want to be people that live that life that glorifies you. And so to do that, Father, we need you. We need you. Our words are not enough. Our actions are not enough. Holy Spirit, we need you to talk and to minister in this time and in this place. So we ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. So we're going to start with, guess what? Mark 1.1. Mark 1.1 starts, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And already with this first sentence, we've hit a challenge because this sentence is full of what we might call Christianese, words that we use all the time and are very familiar with. When it was written, this sentence wasn't something just that rolled off the tongue and you move on to Mark 1-2. This was actually Mark's headline. This was his title. This was something that actually arrested people. This was quite a shocking line. And yet we've got a bit stuck because all these words are just words that we use all the time. I remember when, um, when I was probably in about year 10, we had the school concert band and we, were, we, had, we lived in the country, so we had the Melbourne tour. So we came up to Melbourne and we, we joined with different schools in Melbourne and diff, diff, different gigs. And one of the gigs we did was at the Cabri Factory in Lilydale, wherever it is. Now, they don't often let people do tours, but they gave us a tour. And then at the lunchtime, the two lunchtime shifts, we played music in their lunchtime shifts. And on this tour, the tour guide said to us, I know the question you're going to ask me. I already know it. It gets asked on every single tour I've ever done in this place. Are you allowed to eat as much chocolate as you want? And the answer is yes, we can. There's some rules. We've got to be careful about hygiene and we've got to make sure that, that there's some things and we're not allowed to just take it home and give it to other people. But as staff, we can eat as much chocolate as we want. And she said, you go around and talk to any staff Two weeks. After two weeks, you ain't eating any more chocolate. <laughs> Some people start eagerly and go, awesome, I'm going to eat as much chocolate as I can because I love the idea of eating chocolate. And other people go, no, no, I'm going to contain myself. Doesn't matter. 
doesn't matter where you start, after two weeks, you don't need any more chocolate. And that's the risk that we come to when we come to reading Mark. That we're like people in a cavalry factory that we entered with this enthusiasm and excitement, but after two weeks, we're just working there. And so when we look at this sentence, we can have that same thing. Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Yeah, cool. Okay, let's move on. But this sentence is very dramatic. What's the first two words? The beginning. The beginning. This, this is a little bit cheeky of Mark. He's actually claiming a similar start to another book in the Bible. In the beginning. Now, what happened in the beginning? God did something radical. He created something new. He started something fresh and exciting. And Mark's cheeky enough to start his book in the same way. This is the start of something exciting. But he doesn't just stop there. He goes on. What's the next words? The gospel. Now, we, we use the gospel all the time. We, that word comes off our tongues really easily. But the word gospel is not a common word in their language. The word gospel is for when there's a life-changing event, like the birth of a new king, like a victory in battle. That's when you have a gospel, when there's something dramatic that's happened that is going to change the world, change the, the society. This is news, and it's good news, it's exciting news, but it's news that our country just won victory over another country. This is life-changing. Or a newborn king has just been born. And in fact, the word gospel is used in Jesus' time for the birth of, I forget the guy's name, what was the, the Roman king? Herod, thank you, for the birth of Herod. So in, in other language at the time, the birth of Herod was declared as the gospel. That's when this is used. So this isn't a normal word like we use just you know, talking about Jesus. This is a word of a dramatic event happening in the life of the people in the surroundings. And who's it, who's it about? Jesus Christ. Now, this is where it gets interesting because Jesus is actually a really boring, normal name. The way we got to the word Jesus is a little bit weird because his actual name was Yeshua, right? That, that, was, that was what his mates would have called him, Yeshua. But when you translate the letters for Yeshua into Greek, so he was, he was Aramaic, and when you translate the Aramaic words into Greek, and read them, it kind of sounds like Jesus. And so when you go from Greek to English, we've come up with the word Jesus. But a better translation of his name was Joshua, Yeshua. So Y and J is about the same. Joshua is actually, and Joshua, son of Nun, Yeshua. That was, if you go back to the Hebrew, that was his name. So his name was actually Josh, right? But next to the name Josh, we've got this word Christ. Now, this isn't his name. This is like Sam likes to pick on me and call me Pastor Matt. Or we might have um, Steve the painter. And, and this is what Mark's done here. He's saying Jesus the Christ. And the Christ is the Messiah, the one that the Jewish people said was going to come to save them and to lead them and to be their ruler, to be their king. So he's attaching Josh to this title of Messiah. And then he goes on further than that and says he is the son of God. Son of meaning in the same substance of. So later, actually, at Activate Group on Friday night, Paul was talking to someone and said, you are the son of the devil. You are so evil that you are the substance of 
the devil himself. And so I wrote, wow, that's really confronting. And what he's saying here is he's the substance of God. Now, to the people that he was talking to, these are two different things. Being the Christ, the Jewish people didn't think God was going to be the Christ. They thought God was going to send someone like King David in the line of David. So he's going to be like our amazing King David from the past to come and save us and lead us. And yet what Mark's doing here is actually putting these two things together. Not only is he, is he our saviour, but he's also God. This sentence alone is very, very dramatic. And we can't move on without understanding this because this is his headline. This is what his whole book is about. And in fact, in our language, it might be rephrased to the amazing world-changing launch news of Joshua superhero God-man. Now, when you read that sentence, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to laugh and go, whoever wrote this is an absolute idiot. I have no idea. Or you're going to go, imagine if that's true. This sentence actually lays a foundation that has to be tested. Because if he is the amazing, world-changing launch news of Josh the Superhero God-Man, this is significant. And so he's actually starting this book in a really confronting space. And I really want us to start from that place too. I want us to start not like working in a Cadbury factory for two weeks and going, I've eaten enough, I'm used to this, this is normal. But to go, this is phenomenal news that is life-changing, that is significant and that is dramatic. And where does he go next? He jumps straight into John the Baptist. So it says, uh, Mark 1, 2 to 8, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now remember, Mark's not mucking around. He's just telling it like it is. He's moving on and he's moving fast. But he starts by pausing and saying, This is not insignificant. Let's go back to what was prophesied. And he says, Isaiah said that there would be a messenger. Isaiah said that he would make the way, prepare a way, and that there would be one crying in the desert. And he said, prepare the way of who? The Lord. So here we've got already this God-man reference. He's not preparing the way for a messenger. He's not preparing the way for another king. He's preparing the way for God. Prepare the way for God to come. And the funny thing is that it's not actually completely correct. That's not what Isaiah said. We don't often question that, do we? But if you actually look back, he's referencing two verses, one from Malachi and one from Isaiah. Because Malachi says, Behold, I send a messenger, and he will prepare the way, the way before me. This is God talking about preparing a way before him. And then the Isaiah part was a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
But Isaiah is pretty significant, so Mark's assigned this, this idea to Isaiah. But it's actually a reference from two different places. This is really significant again because it's God being intentional. This is no accident. This is not someone who stumbled out and said, hey, look at me, I'm, I'm a new guy, check me out. This is actually something that Mark's saying is coming prepared. It's intentional. It's by design. God has actually preordained this to happen. Mark also goes on to talk about this guy, John. There is a lot of really significant things in this passage that A, represent John with this prophecy, but also associate John with Elijah. It says in um, 2 Kings 1.8, they answered him, he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather about his waist, and he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So there's a guy, Elijah, who resembles what John's doing. Elijah, one of the most amazing prophets, is a bit like John. Now, the Jews actually thought that Elijah was going to come back and be this messenger. What Mark is doing is going, yes, it's, it's like Elijah. It represents Elijah. It's a, an amazing prophet foretelling and, and bringing this message of the, the Savior and God on earth. And Elijah also hung around the wilderness. He hung around the Jordan River. It was his turf. And this guy is like Elijah. He represents Elijah. Now, locusts actually were clean food then, by the way. It was actually ritually clean to eat locusts. So we think of it as yucky and disgusting, but it was primitive food at the time, but it was actually food that's uh, uh, spiritually clean. But what he says next is that after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to soup down and untie. Now that is a task that only the lowest of the low would do. A teacher would never get their students to untie their shoelaces. That's just dirty and unclean. And even your students wouldn't do that for you. And he's saying, I'm not even worthy to be a student. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelaces. That's how far this guy is above me. And you look at the contrast between the fact that he's got basically the whole of Judea and Jerusalem going out to visit him. There's momentum on his side. He's got a whole heap of attention. There's a whole heap of people gathering around him. And you get the impression that you think about the whole of Jerusalem and Judea, this wasn't a guy on the bank with five people around him. There was momentum here. And he says, you've come out to see me and to repent and to respond to my message. Just wait. This is significant. This is really major. And he goes on to say, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Who can baptize with the Holy Spirit? Only God can. So already this headline that Mark started with, he's reinforcing it and pushing it really hard to say the messenger that came before Jesus was very, very clear, very intentional. God had a lot of pre-planning and purpose in what this Jesus guy was going to do. And Mark is deliberately laying the foundation. Now, the amazing thing is he baptized people. And again, in our language, you go, yeah, people get baptized when they choose to follow Jesus, and why wouldn't he? They're actually really quite confused where he got the idea of baptism from. Scholars kind of go, there's, there's links to the spiritual cleansing in the old the Jewish customs. There's a verse, Exodus 19, 10 says, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today, 
and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. So there's a sense of cleaning. So baptize just means to immerse. So he was immersing them in the water. It's recognized as being spiritual, but prior to this, the idea of baptism in the Jewish culture didn't really exist. So there's a little bit of confusion about this baptism, and yet he makes a point of baptizing people as a reference to forgiveness of sins and repentance. And as we'll see in a second, Jesus makes a reference to it too. So we get to Mark 1.9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. There's no conversation. The other Gospels refer a lot more, in a lot more detail about what went on in this conversation. But Mark's like, let's just get to the point. Um, and I'm not saying the others are irrelevant, but Mark's, Mark's moving. He's, he's moving. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Again, very succinct, but very, very significant. So first of all, why on earth did Jesus go out and get baptized? Did he have sins to confess? Did he have to repent? It's a tough one, isn't it? Jesus was on a journey, an intentional journey. And part of that journey was getting baptized. Now, can you tell me how many of the apostles were there when he got baptized? None? Trick question. All of them. If you go to Acts, and this is where we've got to be careful with Mark because he doesn't do things in order. He does them in, in order of importance or in order of telling what things are happening to, to get his message across. He doesn't do them chronologically. So if you go to Acts, here we go, Acts 1, 21 and 22. So now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we traveled with the Lord Jesus. From the time he was baptized by John until the time he was taken from us, whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So the replacement from Judas had to be someone that was here. They wanted someone that was from the beginning to to the end to be able to testify to what they experienced. So in actual fact, all the 12 disciples were here watching this. And um, that kind of throws you out a little bit, doesn't it? You kind of go, wow, he was already in momentum at this point. So what was the significance of being baptized? The significance was that he was prepared and ready and he was testifying to his disciples and he was testifying to everyone around him that he is ready to receive and ready for his calling. If you look at the, the verses in the Old Testament where they talk about cleaning, that, that Exodus 19 verse, he says, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. We get another link here of him going, I'm ready, I'm clean, I'm prepared to receive the Holy Spirit. Now he was actually already ready. But for those around him, they needed to know he was ready to receive. And we sometimes see baptism as a, as a symbol, and it is a symbol. We sometimes see it as just something that one day, when the, when the time's right, I'll get baptized. But what Jesus does is puts baptism 
as the, the center and initiation of him being ready to receive the spirit and move into purpose. He actually places the baptism not just as a symbol, but as a, a declaration, as a preparation, as an initiation into ministry. And Mark puts it there too. Even before he starts talking about calling disciples, which happened beforehand, or at least at this time because they were there, he goes, Jesus' baptism was actually an initiation to receive. And what comes out of this initiation to receive? God, spirits coming on him like a dove, and God's word speaking to him. It's a very unique circumstance because it's all three parts of the Trinity in one situation at one time. Very, very intentional and very significant. And what does he say to him? You are my son. Another reference. He is God. Whom I love. Relationship. God the Father saying, we're in relationship. With you, I am well pleased. Your purpose and intention is where, where you're going is we're in unity here. Where you're heading, I'm pleased with. And we can look at these lines and go, yeah, I've heard this all before. But Mark is stressing to a bunch of people that this is new to, that how amazingly significant this is and how life-changing this is. This is not just a nice story from 2,000 years ago. This is a revolutionary action that initiates God on earth with purpose and intention. And we lose that in the, in the humdrum of life. We lose that in the complexity of church life, in the complexity of running a family and trying to work and do jobs. And we, we have all this stuff. And yet out in the wilderness where all that's put away is one crying out saying, prepare the way because there is one coming that I'm not even worthy to tie shoes. He is the saviour. He's the Messiah. He's the, he's the God man that's going to revolutionise things. And the whole of Judea was out there to hear him. This is radical news. This is nothing that you can just sit in your seat and say, maybe tomorrow it'll mean something to me. You either accept this news and it revolutionizes your life or you say it's rubbish. There's no middle ground here. He's not giving us any room for any middle ground and he's presenting an amazing case. Again, Mark doesn't muck around. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. Now when it says sent him out, the ESV is being very polite here. It's actually more like drove him out. The other two say um, led him. Um, Mark says drove him. So that who's in control now? The Spirit. The Spirit is in control and drove him into the wilderness. Drove him into the wilderness, intention, purpose. This wasn't he just happened to stumble around and ended up in the wilderness. He was sent there um, by the Spirit. And in the wilderness, he was there for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended to him. This is all he says. Now, in the other Gospels, you hear about three particular temptations of Jesus. But all Mark says is that 40 days of being tempted by Satan. Now, Satan, again, is uh, the direct translation from Hebrew is to be an adversary. 
So this is Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, initiated into his ministry. Now, what I didn't mention is the heavens being torn in two is, again, a reference from the Old Testament. There's a number of references, but uh, the, the sea being parted to bring the people across to the promised land. There's a whole heap of stuff in here that they would have got. As I said, we could spend weeks on these, but I'll keep moving. Once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness, so, so this is intention. There's a plan to go out in the wilderness. And out in the wilderness, he's, he's tempted by his adversary, um, the one that is opposing his kingdom. So we already can see that there's a battle going on. And, and Mark, through this whole message, is talking about the Savior King. So obviously there's, there's a battle here. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Now, has anyone ever heard 40, 40 referred to elsewhere in the Bible? The flood? Walking in the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days of rain and the flood. Fasting, 40 days of fasting. There's plenty of references to 40 days. And pretty much all of them are a reference to a time of testing. 40 years in the desert before they got to the promised land. 40 years of floating around with, with oh, sorry, 40 days of floating around. <laughs> Whew, 40 years would have been hard. <laughs> 40 days of floating around waiting for a sign of God to come. This 40 is very intentional. He is out in the desert as an initiation testing. So this is part two, that everyone in their culture would have understood that this was a significant God set aside time for this superhero man God to prepare. And there's other references there. He was with the wild animals. We hear, we've got references of the lion laying down with the lamb in prophecies talking about Jesus coming. There's a sense that he is out there and he's not alone. Angels attended him. Who sends angels? Who commands the angels? God does. So God is intentionally leading him into the desert for 40 days to meet his adversary, to prepare him for ministry. There's a sense of urgency, a sense of obedience, and there's a sense of unity with the Father. This passage from Mark 1, 2 to Mark 1, 13 is all that Mark does to initiate Jesus into ministry. And I say all, but when you take this passage, when you take this block, this is all he needed. This was everything that references him back to the plan and purposes that God have that initiates him with the Holy Spirit and, and anointing and being set apart and a time of testing and preparation for ministry. The people that would have heard this would have said, he is ready to go. He is set, he's armed, he's equipped, he's anointed, he's, he's, he's gunning it. This guy, whatever's coming next, is significant. It's significant. So what does come next? Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. So this is now Jesus talking. We've had everything about what was happening around Jesus and how he responded to John and how he responded to the Holy Spirit. But now he's initiated, he's ready. Proclaiming the gospel of God, again, 
gospel. Radical things are happening at the moment, people, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Believe in this good news. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. This is not something future anymore. This is here. And I'm actually going to pause here because we could go on, but it's too significant. When you think about our lives and you think about the complexity of, as I mentioned before, what would your headline be if you were to be writing a letter to someone about Jesus? For you right now, not referencing the Bible and saying this is what the Bible says about Jesus. What would you say in a letter to a friend? What would your headline be about Jesus in your life right now? What's the words, what's the things that we would write that represent who Jesus is now? What would we say to someone? And when I think about that for me, I end up fumbling around with Christianese. I end up fumbling around with words that, that aren't my heart. They're, they're some things I've been taught. And I realized that as I, as I thought about that this week, I realized that the drama that Mark is trying to help us understand, how alive these words are to him, is not my experience. These words have become too normal. They've become too plain. They've become too household. The interesting thing is when that first line, it says um, the son of God, there's some, some early manuscripts don't have that, that phrase in there. And when they've decided whether or not to put it in, they've gone, it fits with the rest of his message. There are some that have it. And they say, possibly those that were rewriting it out, someone may have just missed it. And then the person that copied their one copied it without it in there. Because there was this sense of urgency. We've got to make copies of this thing. We've got to get this word out. We've got to get, this is too significant. And you can see the urgency that Mark has even in his writing. And yet we slot this message in the mix of what's for dinner? What have I got to do tomorrow? How am I going to pay that bill? There's all these other things. And this becomes something that just sits in there somewhere. And it doesn't have that life-changing, radical position. And as I prayed a couple of weeks ago about the Search to Find course, and Lord, I want, to, um, I want to be able to invite someone. I don't have anyone in mind that easily comes to mind, but this is significant. As I started my walk the following morning, I was really convicted and challenged because I passed three, four, five, six, seven other people walking and they're just another person on the street to me. Hi, how you going? Keep going. And all of a sudden, that day was different. I was like, wow, they're not just another person on the street. There's someone that may not have heard this message. I've gone, God, give me the boldness. Give me the understanding. Give me the courage. Now, I haven't stopped any of them yet. Yes, but they're a different person than they were two weeks ago. The person that walking is a person that needs to know this story, that needs to know this amazing superhero, Josh Godman. And yet 
I lost that somewhere along the line. I know it. I know it. We've got to share. That's what, that's what we're told to do. But it wasn't the drama that Mark is intentionally trying to get a message across to us in here. I'd, I'd just as easily invite them to an awesome movie than to share the gospel with them. Are they on parallel? Of course not. And so I realize that the words that I speak, the attitude that I have towards this amazing, miraculous, life-changing event didn't represent it very well. And so we can go on and we can, we can look at the rest of the stuff that, that Mark 1 talks about, but we can't until we grasp the significance of it. And I think as this series progresses, it'll unpack. I'm not saying we've got to get this today or else the rest of it's going to be a waste of time. God will continually work and God's spirit will continually to reveal to us. But I don't want to continue without acknowledging this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's too dramatic. It's too significant. It's too profound to be able to go, let's just skip over it and move on. I really think that individually and corporately, we need to make this our agenda. We need to make this our, our heart's agenda. I, I really think we need to make this our heart's agenda, not our mind's agenda to understand it more. We can unpack this and go through it all in, in a lot more detail. But often it's not our minds that make, make the decisions, it's our heart that drives us. Yeah, It's our heart that motivates our choices and our decisions. Holy Spirit, I really just want you right now to arrest our hearts. Lord, when you sent John the messenger, you said, prepare. Prepare for the one that comes after me. And Lord, that message was one that said we need to repent, clean up the house so that we were ready to receive. And Lord, our houses are so complicated. There's so many rooms and there's junk in many of them and the ones that are clean, there might be on the other end of the house. But Lord, we can't get past this first part. You ask us, Lord, to come back to our first love. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do that in us this morning. Lord, bring us back to our first love. Bring us back to the place that you started Bring us back to the revelation of your power, of your authority and your intention and your purpose in sending Jesus, our Saviour, and a sacrifice that only God provided, you provided. Arrest us this morning, Lord God, with that revelation.